Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Some of you might know that I grew up about uh, an hour north of here, uh, outside of a little town called Roanoke, uh, which is south of Fort Wayne a little bit. And when I was in grade school, my family lived in a two-story house, and my second-story bedroom window looked out into our backyard where there was a little red shed that my dad stored stuff in. Uh, There was a little basketball court that my dad made. There was a really large garden. There was an in-ground pool. And one of the memories that I recall from growing up in that house was peacefully falling asleep on warm summer nights in my bedroom to the sound of the crackling and sizzling of insect flesh as bugs flew into the bug zapper that my dad had hung in one of the trees in the backyard. Now, I don't know if you know about these bug zappers. These devices essentially electrocute bugs who fly into this high-voltage grid making a zapping sound when they die. Uh, This source of bright light there is designed to draw insects who are attracted to light sources, a characteristic of animal life known as positive phototaxis for you science nerds. Um, But it's like fruit flies being drawn to vinegar or moths to flames. Eradicating these kinds of insects entails simply appealing to their instincts to fly toward whatever light source they see without judgment, resistance, or self-control, even if that light source is going to kill them. The reason I'm sharing that story with you is because I can't help but see some spiritual similarities in that. St. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light, tempting us to draw us toward that which would prove for our destruction. And like these instinctual insects, we have impulses and inclinations in our hearts that if we follow them, they'll destroy us. We'll follow appetites and pursue pleasures that seem good at first, but they will eventually lead to death. And so unlike these instinctive insects, exercising self-control is vital in our spiritual life. And we must use judgment and restraint in the face of our appetites and our desires if we're going to survive spiritually. The ancient Greek philosopher Plato, uh, portrayed here, believed that if our animal urges are not governed, They will produce a feverish state in the soul, a city of pigs, which knows no limits. In other words, Plato believed if we lack self-control, we'll end up living like pigs. And we see evidence of that, don't we? But even more importantly than Plato, Scripture repeatedly exhorts us to self-control. Self-control is listed as a fruit of the Spirit, In Galatians chapter 5, actually the last one listed there, having a prominent place in that list, we read this from the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. And we read of this need for exercising self-control in our text this morning. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. So if you have that in your Bibles, I invite you now to stand for the reading of God's Word. If you don't have a Bible this morning, the text will be displayed there on the screen for you to follow along. 
So hear now God's word to us this morning. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray now that your blessing would rest upon the proclamation of your truth. Fill us with your spirit that we might receive it in a way that's worthy of your children. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Uh, In considering this passage this morning and um, the importance of exercising self-control, we're going to look at these three points. Uh, We're going to begin with the nature of self-control, and then we're going to consider the necessity of self-control, and then finally we'll conclude with some words about the nurture of self-control. But we want to begin with some words about the nature of self-control. Now, just by way of some background, the book of Titus in the Bible is not written by Titus. It's written by the Apostle Paul to Titus, and we see this in chapter 1, verse 5. And it's written by Paul to give Titus directions about how to order the church, how to order church life. Included in that is the appointment of elders in chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, as well as the importance of teaching what accords with sound doctrine. Okay, and Paul envisions this instruction of sound doctrine being important for various groups within the church. Beginning in chapter 2, it's important for older men to be instructed and older women to be instructed and younger women to be instructed and younger men to be instructed and finally for slaves to be instructed. And that's verses 1 through 10 just prior to our passage in chapter 2. But note that Paul is very concerned to stress the importance of self-control throughout the letter. We read of self-control already in chapter 1, verse 8, as a qualification for being a leader in the church. An elder must be self-controlled. And then when we get to chapter 2, we read of this importance of self-control in chapter 2, verse 2, and again in verse 3, and again in verse 5, and again in verse 6, all before we get to this reference of self-control in our text in verse 12. So why does Paul put such a stress on the importance of self-control. What does he mean by self-control? Well, the Greek word that Paul uses repeatedly throughout this passage carries with it the idea of being sober-minded, being sober-minded, in contrast to being, say, out-of-control drunk, being in possession of one's faculties. The Greek word also carries with it the notion of being thoughtful, in contrast to being impulsive as well as exercising moderation as opposed to indulging or going to extremes. We could say that the word just generally carries with it the idea of acting in a level-headed, prudent manner. And in addition to these things, this idea, this biblical concept of self-control based both on the word that Paul uses here and throughout Scripture, we could say self-control biblically involves living within proper limits. That's the biblical idea of self-control, living within proper limits. Now, this would be expressed differently in different contexts. For example, we could say that at times, self-control would be exercised and expressed by using things in moderation and showing restraint 
in the face of overindulging, okay? Using things in moderation and showing restraint. The book of Proverbs talks about the wisdom of this. Proverbs chapter 25, verses 16 and 17 say, If you have found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit it. Let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house, lest he have his fill of you and hate you. An exercise of moderation, recognizing proper limits in terms of our appetites as well as within our relationships. That's the biblical notion of self-control. We also read this in Proverbs 21.20, Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. No restraint, no moderation. But self-control at other times would be expressed by attending to things in the proper time or the proper order. So we could say that attending to things in the right and sensible order also we see Proverbs speaking to this. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 4. The sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. Proverbs 24, 27. Prepare your work outside. Get everything ready for yourself in the field. And after that, build your house. So attending to things in the right and proper order, regardless of whether in the moment you feel like attending to those things or not, that's self-control. So we could contemporize this and say, do your homework first and then play your games. Get a job first, then buy your house. That takes self-control, and that's inclusive of this biblical concept of self-control. But a third thing we could say is that self-control involving living within proper limits would be expressed at times as completely abstaining or avoiding where sin is involved. We see this already in the passage that Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians, to abstain from sexual immorality. We are not to practice sin in moderation. We're not to engage in sin only at the proper time. What that calls for is complete abstinence and avoidance. So in some contexts, that's what self-control is going to look like. And so whether it's moderation, attending to things in the right order, or um, abstaining completely, Living within proper limits is going to be a challenge for us because the sinfulness in our hearts loathes all boundaries. The sin in us wants absolute and complete freedom. It despises any boundaries. Even if that means the train is going to jump off the tracks and we're going to be derailed. We want to be cut free from the control of a rudder. Even if that means we're going to be at the mercy of the waves of the sea and we're going to be dashed on the rocks. Or to maybe use biblical imagery the sinfulness in us wants to eat from every tree, even if that's going to bring us death. And so exercising these proper limits is going to be a challenge for us. But we also need to recognize that true freedom means being able to say no to certain desires and urges. That's what it really means to be free, that we're capable of saying no to some of those things. And so in addition to self-control involving living within proper limits, biblically, Self-control means controlling your desires and urges rather than being controlled by them. Okay, that's fairly self-evident, right? Not being enslaved to your impulses. Not being governed by instinct like mere animals. I mean, do you want to live your life acting like an animal in heat? Enslaved to hormonal urges? You want your life to be characterized like a dog returning to its vomit? 
without resistance because of instinct? You want to be controlled like a rabid beast by anger? Ravaging everything and everyone in your midst? Because that's what will happen without self-control, and that will not produce a healthy or godly life. But you were made with more dignity than that. You're made as a divine image bearer to live your life in service and obedience to the God who gives life and blessing. You're not made to live life in service to your passions, enslaved and in bondage to your passions. Benjamin Franklin said correctly, he is a governor that governs his passions, and he is a servant that serves them. To be self-controlled is to not be in bondage to the appetites, desires, and passions of your flesh. You could also say this, our appetites can be good servants, but they are miserable masters. We are not to be controlled by our desires, but we are made to control our desires. And we can also say this, though, we must not confuse biblical self-control with self-dependence. Remember that self-control is something worked in us by the Holy Spirit. It's a fruit of the Spirit. So how does this work together? Well, we can say that I exercise biblical self-control when I control myself under the power of the Holy Spirit with a specific aim toward godliness. That's biblical self-control. That's not self-dependence. Exercising self-control under the power of the Holy Spirit with the aim of godliness. There's a specific aim in it, which sets it apart from other kinds of self-control that we might see in the world. Because, let's face it, non-Christians can exercise restraint and moderation when they're pursuing a higher aim. You don't have to be a Christian to do that. For example, a person who's pursuing worldly success will limit sleep. A person who's trying to obtain a beach body or athletic victory will control what he or she is eating. Someone who wants to accumulate wealth will limit spending. People will control their anger when they're trying to avoid relational friction. People will deny their sexual impulses when they're trying to avoid the negative consequences of guilt or possible rejection or even legal problems. People are able to show restraint and moderation in those things, but that's not the biblical concept of self-control. Biblically, the fruit of self-control is a divinely empowered ability to say no to our desires specifically for the sake of obeying and following Jesus. That's biblical self-control, and that's not self-dependence. And it has a specific aim or goal in mind, obeying and following Jesus, even if that hurts and even if it requires crucifying our own desires for the sake of Jesus' desires for us. So in reality, there are always a lot of competing desires going on in our hearts at one time. And some of those desires are good, and some of those desires are bad, some of those desires are sinful, and we make choices about which desires we're going to follow. But it's these competing desires in our hearts that helps us see the necessity of exercising self-control. So that's the second thing that I want us to look at. So having considered a little bit about the nature of self-control, what's the importance and the necessity of self-control. Well, think about it this way. If we lack self-control over the desire to, say, play video games or watch sports or um, 
indulge in an extra two hours of sleep repeatedly, then that will eventually sabotage God's call upon our life to go to class and earn a degree. If we can't control those desires, that's what's going to happen. We're not going to be able to be faithful to God. Desires for pornography will pervert real intimacy in real relationships that God would have for you. An inability to control the desires for worldly success will send you out the door to work and you'll eventually not be faithful to the obligation to nurture loving, godly relationships with your spouse and with your children. Not being able to exercise control over your desire for the intoxicating effects of drugs and alcohol is a path to addiction where those desires trump everything. The addict cares only about those desires that alcohol or drugs will bring, even if that means the sacrifice of work, family, children, and even a relationship with God. And so in the midst of these competing desires that are going on, self-control is necessary if we're going to be wise and if we're going to be faithful to God. It's absolutely required. And so one reason for the necessity of self-control is that we have competing desires. We have to choose which ones we're going to follow. But I also want you to note that Titus is in Crete, a place called Crete. This is in chapter 1, verse 5, which according to chapter 1, verse 12, doesn't seem to have the best of reputations. They're referred to as liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. In other words, it seems to be a rather indulgent culture there in Crete. So it shouldn't be difficult for us to imagine that Paul might be stressing the importance of self-control as well if Titus was living in present-day United States. He would still stress the importance of self-control because we live in an indulgent culture that requires the exercise of self-control. Life in the land of plenty seems to lead to the wasteland of excess. Isn't that true? That, that's where it seems that we find ourselves now, the wasteland of excess. Our obesity rates are the highest in the world. And it, it suggests that we don't control our consumption of food and we're not very active. We're too sedentary. We watch too much TV. And the reports of credit card debt and how much bankruptcy is filed and the kind of impulse shopping and impulse buying, interesting word, right? Impulse buying suggests that we don't control our spending that we're indulgent in materialism and consumerism. The, the number of alcohol-related accidents and alcohol-related injuries suggests that we don't control our drinking behavior. The number of unintended teenage pregnancies, the number of STDs, marital infidelity rates, the number of people using Ashley Madison websites to arrange affairs, the instances of rape, reveal that we don't control our sexual impulses as a culture. And the instances of road rage, of domestic disturbances, domestic violence, and just all kinds of violent crimes suggest that we, we're not a culture that controls our anger either. We are an indulgent culture. That's where we live. And in many ways, we're out of control. Out of control. Not self-controlled, but out of control. And that's a problem. That's not good. It's like a garden that's left untended and is not properly fenced. It doesn't recognize limits. There are no limits. And so what happens, it becomes a jungle of weeds so that the fruit and the vegetation, in other words, the life of the garden, is threatened. 
That's where we're at. Culturally, the life is threatened because of a lack of self-control. And that's true not just of cultures, though. It's true of every individual heart. Is your heart more like a tended garden through the exercise of self-control? Or do you feel that your life is more characterized by a jungle of weeds because you lack self-control? Because one of the things we have to face is our main problem is not that we live in an indulgent culture. That's not our main problem. And our main problem isn't even that Satan masquerades as an angel of light to tempt us to that which would destroy us. Our main problem and the, the main necessity for self-control over our desires, our impulses, our appetites, our cravings, our urges for food and for sex and for sleep and for entertainment, the need to control our anger, our egos, our mouths, is because our desires have been corrupted and polluted by sin. The problem is inside of us. We are corrupted and polluted by sin. In verse 12, Paul talks about ungodliness and worldly passions needing to be renounced. He's not saying that the passions of the world out there need to be renounced, as true as that is. He's talking about worldly passions right in here, within our own hearts. It's true that the world will lie to you. It's true that Satan will lie to you. But something we all have to come to grips with is this truth as well. The desires of your own heart will lie to you. Your desires will lie to you. They will make promises to you that they will not keep. Jeremiah says that the, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's your heart, and that's my heart. And we have to be willing to admit this, and we have to be ready to face this if you're going to exercise self-control and be willing to renounce some of your desires. Because you're going to have to be prepared at some point to take a stand against your own heart's desires in order to stand with God and yield to Him. Because there'll be numerous instances in which the desires that you have for yourself and the desires that God has for you will not be the same. And what are you going to do then? You have to be prepared to renounce those desires to do what God wants you to do in spite of what you want to do. You have to be prepared to do that because that's entailed in a life of discipleship. And so we see the necessity of self-control. But how do we prepare to do that? And how do we grow in self-control? Well, that leads us to the third thing, the nurture of self-control. Does exercising self-control just involve adopting the Reagan administration's slogan for the war on drugs, just say no? Is that all there is to it? Well, there is a point at which Paul says you have to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. There's a point at which, yes, we have to say no. But Paul says a lot more here. Let me mention six things involved in the nurture of self-control. Now just relax, I'm going to make these six points brief. Exercise self-control, don't get out of control, I'll make these brief. The first thing in the nurture of self-control is to acknowledge the power of God's grace. Look at what Paul says in verse 11. He says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, which I would take meaning all classes of people. He's just, got, he's just finished mentioning slaves. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men, 
all classes of people. The salvation of God has appeared. But notice also he says that this grace is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Self-control is possible for you because of the reality of grace. It's possible for you to exercise self-control, even against the strongest of urges and impulses, because of the power and the reality of God's grace. Because Jesus has come, and he's come to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession. Verse 14. You are empowered by grace to renounce your worldly passions and to exercise self-control in this present age, right now. And isn't it true that if grace isn't making a difference in our life, in our home, in our relationships, by training us to be self-controlled, to consume in moderation, to control our urges and desires for food, for sex, over anger, for rest and for sleep, if it's not making an impact in those areas, if grace doesn't matter in those areas, isn't it worth questioning whether it's doing anything? What difference is it making in your life if it's not training you for self-control? But what Paul emphasizes here is that you can break free from being enslaved to whatever desire, whatever impulse, whatever urge, whatever cravings you're battling. You can say no. You can resist today. Tonight, tomorrow as you begin your work week, this week, in this present age, you can resist, you can say no. But you know how? By grace. Because God's grace in Christ has appeared to you to provide strength in that. And so one of the things that, that we have to ask is, do we believe this? Do you believe that this is true? That because of grace and the reality of grace, and the power of grace, that you can say no, you have a choice by the power of God. Because the nurture of self-control starts with faith in the promise and power of God's grace in the gospel. That's where it starts. We can say more. Second thing is to purposefully engage in the practice of self-control in small moments. It's how to nurture self-control. Purposefully engage in practicing self-control in small moments. Typically, the more you feed desires, the bigger and more demanding they get. That's one of the ways our desires lie to us. Feed me and I'll go away. They're lying. It's like, they're like itches that once you scratch them, they itch worse. Our desires generally get bigger and more demanding when we feed them. And that's why small refusals are big steps in the battle against being controlled by your desires. Don't underestimate. Just small refusals are important in the battle against your desires. So, on occasion, make sure you're incorporating these kinds of things in your life. Resist the impulse to hit the snooze button. Just resist the impulse to do that and get up. Resist the desire to speed and go exactly the speed limit for a stretch of time. That's going to be a really hard exercise for some of you, myself included. That's going to require a great deal of restraint, but you have to practice those kinds of things. Resist the urge to procrastinate and do it right away. Resist your appetite to eat that snack 
or to overindulge at lunch. Work fasting, small fasts, into your life just so you're practicing resisting that appetite for food. Occasionally refrain from airing your opinion when you don't need to speak. Show restraint. Deliberately and purposefully incorporate those things into your life. Practice renouncing urges in small moments because those small refusals are big steps in nurturing self-control. So don't underestimate those things. Third thing, devise a plan for growth. Devise a plan for growth. Identify areas where you struggle with self-control. Where are your biggest problem areas? Identify those and then determine what are you going to do and who or what's going to hold you accountable to change and controlling yourself. One of the clearest indications that you're committed to growing in self-control is enlisting the help of those who are closest to you. Don't try to do this by yourself. Devise a plan, identify the areas you struggle, and invite other people into that to help you. But you can't do it on your own, and you can't do it just through others. It's a fruit of the Spirit. You need God's help to do this. With whatever plan you adopt, you need God to work this in you. And so the fourth thing is to regularly pray to God for self-control. He's the one that's going to have to accomplish this. Fifth thing, adopt a perspective of eternity. Part of this means just remembering that how you feel at any given point in time is not the way you're always going to feel. It's hard to keep that perspective sometimes, but it's true. Cravings, desires, and urges, they fluctuate in their strength. Remember that. Keep that in mind. Keep a bigger picture in mind. But not just, well, this may go away later. Adopt a perspective of eternity. And Moses is actually a good example of this. In Hebrews chapter 11, listen to what this says about Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. You see that? Moses, is, he's focused on something else. He's adopted an eternal perspective. He recognizes the pleasures of sin are fleeting, but he's looking towards something else. In other words, he's looking toward what Paul writes about in verse 13 of our text, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying here. Focusing on future glory nurtures self-control. It does, doesn't it? Focusing on future glory nurtures self-control. We see it all the time. Athletes who want to win a championship at the end of the season refrain from all kinds of desires and impulses because they're focused on future glory. Business partners will skip meals and miss sleep to work on the presentation in the hopes that they'll seal the deal. We can go without all kinds of things when we're focused on a future glory. And we have the greatest glory of all to focus on. Not a fading glory, but an eternal glory. Jesus is coming again. Reflecting on that, adopting that perspective nurtures self-control. And that really leads us to the sixth. And that's look to the person of Jesus. Here's a very important concept to embrace and to understand. Eventually, when it really boils down to it, and when you have to make a choice, and when your, your hand is forced, you will subordinate all other desires to the ultimate and supreme desire of your heart. 
When you really have to, that's what you'll do. You'll subordinate all desires to the supreme desire, ruling in your heart. What is that for you? Does your desire for Jesus trump all other desires? Does your love for him win out in the end? But maybe a better question is this, or at least equally as important question is this. Do you want it to? Do you want your desire for Jesus to trump everything else? Because the reality is, our love for Jesus isn't going to be perfect in this life. And our exercise of self-control isn't going to be perfect until we reach glory. But here's what's true. A growing love for Jesus and a deeper love for his beauty and for following him as your Savior will nurture increasing self-control. But it's never going to be easy. Exercising self-control is hard. It requires self-denial, effort, and it's spiritual warfare. And what else is true is you have to want it. You have to want self-control, not just if it's going to be easy, not just if it means giving up certain kinds of desires and cravings that you don't care that much about anyway. Not later, not when the craving has lessened in its strength, and not just when a lack of self-control is causing misery in your life, which is bound to happen. You have to want self-control out of a deep love for God and a desire to live within His will, obeying Him and being governed by Jesus as your King. You have to want it for that as a Christian. We could sum the whole thing up like this. Transforming grace empowers us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives as we look to Jesus as the supreme and governing desire of our hearts. That's it, in a nutshell. And the reason we should look to Jesus as the supreme and governing desire of our hearts is because Jesus is better and more satisfying and more life-giving in the end than anything else and anyone else that we could look to. The temptations of Satan are lies. The worldly passions of our flesh are lies. The love of Jesus is the truth. How do you know that? Because of what Paul says in verse 14. Jesus is the one who gave himself up for us to redeem us. That's how we know his love is the truth. So let's not give ourselves to fleeting cravings and appetites and impulses and urges and instinct, but let's live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives and give ourselves fully to the one who's already given himself fully to us, who enables us to be self-controlled. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that in many ways our lives do not reflect self-control. But we also acknowledge the reality of your grace that trains us to live this way. May we look in faith to your word and to your son Jesus and grow in self-control so that we might submit all of our desires to you, that you would take our lives and all that we are and use them for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name.